0: Hey folks, summer is here, June the 10th. Who'd have thunk it? Already nearly halfway through 2019. I'm going to start the podcast today just by thanking those of you who have taken time to support the podcast on Patreon. Uh, As those regular listeners will know, I've been asking people to sign up at www.patreon.com forward slash Shawnee B. And the response has been fantastic to the point where right now, The contributions I'm getting to the podcast are covering the cost of making the podcast. And that has been an enormous help to me. So thank you all very much. Those of you who haven't yet signed up, if you could, that'd be great. Of course, it's always going to be free to those listening. That's the way I envisage it. Some of you may have seen some irritating ads for a pint with Shawnee B on Facebook. I would like to thank my friend Ben Griffiths who organized that. I have also spoken in the past about one of the roles I see for this podcast as for kids and teenagers who haven't yet decided what they want to be when they grow up or what they want to do with their lives. And this podcast series, I also see as a resource for them and career guidance teachers to allow kids to listen to my guests and the lives they have lived and the decisions they've made and the choices and troubles they've had to overcome. Um, And as I said, career guidance teachers are also on the radar in that regard. So if you know anyone who is a teacher, um, mention the podcast to them as well or send it to them. There's a couple of schools currently using the podcast in sort of fifth form, sixth form areas. um, Sending it to their kids and asking the kids to have a listen to one of their choice. And apparently it's working quite well. So I'm looking at kind of growing the audience a little bit in that area. Area Right, on to today's show. Today's show is one of, and there's a funny backstory to it. With podcasting, I tend to try and find somewhere relatively quiet to record. As you can imagine, I've had gigantic errors in the past where I've tried to record in noisy bars or one particular incident outside a bar in Manly in Sydney over a busy summer's day. And the noise can become unbearable and extremely difficult to edit and reduce and remove such that you might be able to hear the conversation that's going on. I was interviewing the guests for this show in a hotel in London and I was there an hour before the, our intended meeting time and I sleuthed around for the best place possible. The hotel was quite quiet and I was meeting David Hepworth, who is my guest in what I thought was a quiet lobby. As soon as we pressed play, all the various conference rooms that were having conferences in this hotel opened up and everyone left and walked by us chatting and staff members of the hotel started trundling by with tables on huge plinths and it became an absolute nightmare and the nightmare was made slightly worse by the fact that my guest is himself a broadcaster so he was kind of looking at me as if I had two heads wondering what sort of an Irish idiot would pick such a clearly atrocious place Uh, from which we would try and record our podcast. Anyway, he was a great sport about it and gave me a great interview, punctuated by pauses and noisy stoppages. But his story is a great one. It's very well worth telling. We're coming up, would you believe, to 34 years since Live Aid. I think it was the 13th of July, 1985. And it's still ranks as one of the most phenomenal achievements to even put it on, not to mind broadcast it around the world. David Hepbirth, my guest today, is a writer and a man who has spent most of his life in the music business. He was actually a presenter on BBC that day and talks about what it was like to be on the front of camera introducing all these acts. As this amazing day kind of unfurled, you'll hear him talk about the fact that when he went home at night, he had no idea of the impact this show was having as he was broadcasting it during the day. He's a great raconteur. He's just released a new book all about the history of the long playing record, which will be very interesting for you to hear. And he was a founder, of, founder, contributor, and editor of things like Smash Hits magazine. He's a music journalist. He also hosted the Old Grey Whistle Test, which, for those of you of a certain generation, We'll remember fondly as kind of a cool version of top of the pops anyway i learned my lesson i thank david hepworth very much for his patience there's an awful lot of editing went into getting this thing to a point where it can be listened to without aggravation without further ado i give you he has written a david lot of books uh, about rock music and, and rock stars and his new book is a fabulous creation which has just launched and in fact he's on a promotional tour, I'd like to think a pint would surely be as part of that. And welcome to the podcast, David Hepworth. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Nice to be here. Thank you very much for agreeing to see me. Tell me about your new book. It's it's
1: called The Year the of the LP, is really what it's about. So mm-hmm. it's kind of 1967 to 1982. Mm-hmm. It starts with Sgt. Pepper's like The Arts Club, and it finishes with a Thriller. And I suppose what I, what I wanted to do, you know, when it comes to music history... I suppose I'm as interested in the history as I am in the music. Mm. And the bit of the history that interests me is, is how people interact with this stuff. And I think there's a danger with, with LPs that they get kind of confused with the, the revival and interest in all things vinyl. Yes. You know, so you, a young people come to my house and say, oh, look, you've got a lot of vinyls. Yeah. Like, Whatever is that all about? And what I wanted to do is to kind of summon up the age when the long-playing record was the primary medium of home entertainment. Really. Yeah. And also to kind of look at why you'll never bring it back.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you know? So like, even with the relaunch of Vinyl and, the, and, the, and the, it's a, you, you still... Do, that's a different thing. I think it's a different thing, mm. isn't
1: it? Because I think one of the points I am making in the book, you know, is that even look at the glory days of the LPs.
0: You had, in Britain... Two channels of television, yeah, <laughs> millions watching Top of the Pops. David was a h- host of the old Grey Whistle Test, yeah. which was the cool Top of oh, the Pops.
1: <laughs> and you know, and there was there was no time shifting, mm. and there was no VHS, and there yeah. was clearly no mobile phone, no social media. You know, you had very little, few leisure options. You know, a record in those days, and musical experience was you focused on a record in a way that I don't think it's possible to do any longer. Mm. You know, and I think there's loads of reasons. You know, the reason it's called A Fabulous Creation is that the 12-inch record, the 12-inch LP, was a kind of wonderful, magical product of its limitations. Yeah. You know, it was easy
0: to damage, difficult to carry a record. Yeah. You know, So all those things made it really precious. And it wasn't one song, it was a bunch of songs to do a placed an order off, you know, like, you yeah, kind of... Yeah, um, it was kind of an experience, you know, being... But, Apart from anything else, it was difficult to, to kind of skip
1: tracks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You had to know what you were doing to do that. Yeah, yeah you yeah. probably scratch it in the in the yeah, process. Yeah. Whereas everything we do nowadays, whether it's reading or watching Netflix or using a mobile phone, we do. It strikes me with our finger on the button, ready to take us away, move on, and it's a moving on is the key part of the experience. Yeah, whereas. Nothing could be further from the LP.
0: What do you think the the greatest LP ever made was? Pepper? Oh, I'm your own opinion.
1: I mean, when I look for the purpose of that book, when I looked at you know the golden age and I the mature masterpieces, it strikes me of 1974, are things like Joni Mitchell's Court and Spark and things like Randy Newman's Good Old Boys. Uh, I guess. In the case of Court and Spark, I think because it's kind of got the sophistication of a of a novel, but it's also got the simple playability of a pop record. Yeah, that you'd though, have yeah. to have. And in the case of Randy Newman's Good Old Boys, because I adore Randy Newman, nobody would ever dare make that record any longer. Yeah. You simply would not be allowed to make that
0: record. Your favourite single, and you're very vociferous about this, is Chuck <laughs> Berry's. You never can tell. You never can Why tell. is that the greatest single? I mean, you're very adamant about this. Well, like. listen. I mean, it's, it's partly,
1: partly tongue in cheek, you know. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a residue of. We used to work on smash hits years ago, and it's one of the kind of common amusements it used to be. I think you'll find the greatest yeah, record yeah. ever made is. Landshut yeah. And then somebody goes go, no! If you go yeah. and check, you're working out. I think you'll find it was just a joke. Yeah, yeah. um, but I think. Why do I pick You Never Can Tell? Because it's the most beautiful, hopeful, up-for yeah, thing. So, 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 yeah. But it's made by the most misanthropic I old know. shit. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah he, he, That's yeah, the interesting thing at, to at me. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, and, and people always want to adore rock stars. Maybe it's kind of what the life he would have liked to have well, lived. He, nice he was
1: really good at thinking his way into that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. He's also family sophisticated. And, you know, his lyrics are. Just masterful, yeah. absolutely. You know, I had on my
0: podcast uh, two th- two or three episodes ago, Brian Griffin, who right. you, you may know. He was one of the top photographers who right, photographed right. most of those albums in the 70s and 80s. And, and you know, uh, very interesting take on him uh, to it as well. You said the album finished with Thriller. We're, we're recording this podcast a couple of weeks after the big Michael Jackson uh, Documentary on Channel Four, uh, which plays well to your book. Why was Thriller the end? Because there was lots of LPs after that. There
1: was lots of LPs after that. Well, I suppose because loads of things came along to supplant the ancient purpose of the LP. The Walkman arrived. Yeah. The Walkman changed everything. Mm. <laughs> the, the Walkman allowed you to kind of design to make music a soundtrack to your daily yeah. movement around the world. It also tempted you to kind of make your own compilations yeah, and not tastes. accept the kind of off the shelf yeah. thing uh, and the video arrived and the mm. video changed it you know so you, you're no longer sitting there looking at record, generating your own pictures in your head you know if you look at some of Michael Jackson he was, he was an audio visual entertainer
0: Well, Billy Jean thriller well they made MTV yeah. and yeah.
1: MTV made him you know yeah, yeah. Uh, and also I think there was something about the sheer scale of his success that was the kind of end because it was it strikes me it was kind of reverse engineered if that's the appropriate expression we start with the market first what does the market want yeah okay we'll put together something that the market wants and behold the market did want it yeah. and ever since that point everybody you know rolling the dice has been trying to do it in a very similar way whereas I don't think that the Beatles made so much of paper I don't think that was that thought at all no. Their thought was to impress their peers mm. Um, I don't think it bothered them whether it sold you know 40 million or 20 million or whatever and then you've got the CD and the is a different thing you know the CD Brothers in a,
0: Arms was the one that kind of
1: I remember in the well that was the thing that was used as kind of you know to demonstrate the CD yeah, player so if you went to any department store whenever yeah, that was yeah. you'd always hear it. did you
0: hear the story about uh, Blame It on the Boogie do you know the story oh, about that no, good Right. Point. so Blame It on the Boogie was written by Michael Jackson Right. right, and I think it came out in 1975 or 6, which would have meant Michael Jackson was something like, whenever Michael Jackson was 14 okay. and then in two years previously there was a song called Blame It on the Boogie which is exactly the same song and, and, and on, on that album The Jackson 5, it was all songs written by the Jackson 5 or whatever right. or by the Jacksons but there was a different Michael Jackson from Bolton who actually wrote Blame It on the Boogie and so on the album Michael Jackson, but it wasn't the Jackson Five. Michael Jackson was listed as the writer, so they did say, "Yeah, all, all of Jackson." You know, I didn't know that. And there is a guy who is who's been dining at, well, not dining at, I'm sure, but gritting his teeth about the fact that he wrote "Blame It on the Movies." There's no way a 14 year old could write. I mean, it was a beautiful pop song, right? <laughs> and he, they just said, "Oh, right, written by Michael Jackson." Yeah, yeah, absolutely, so it didn't tell any lies. I was
1: thinking when I was writing this book. I was, Thriller, you know, they they started off with hundreds of songs for Thriller, right? You know, and all the big songwriters in Hollywood and the States all punted songs. Can you get a song of Michael Jackson? Yeah. And there was one guy that had a song on the running order, and then when they redid the running order, he was bounced. Really? Can you imagine that?
0: <laughs> like, is that. is Michael Jackson dead now? Finally, as a phenomenon? Yeah. Has as, as this new documentary killed him finally? Well,
1: all I'd say to that is I wouldn't like to have Shares in his legacy yeah. right now. Or the West End show you the know, I, 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 think, I think certainly the persona of Michael Jackson is Delicious. very difficult to imagine that selling. I wrote a column in the Radio Times recently about that, it, that I could understand why Radio 2 weren't playing in their Michael Jackson right now, But you couldn't ban it. <laughs> You know and, you know you couldn't treat him like he was a Gary glitter. With, with Michael Jackson, you know there are three pillars of popular music. Michael Jackson, the Beatles and Elvis Presley, yeah, yeah. without whom you do not yeah. understand it. Yeah. And so you can't take him away like yeah. that. You know I think the present has to find a way of dealing with the past without feeling it has to mark the past out of ten, which is
0: It's what I call the tyranny of now. Uh, I
1: come across a lot of signs of this, you
0: know. The parallel thing that you write about as well and have written books about, I think your book uh, on Common People, is the rise and fall of rock stars. Yeah, yeah. Your theory is that there will never be a rock star like Elvis again. No, there can be. There can be, because uh,
1: apart from anything else, social media, you know, if a rock star went round behaving today the way that Jimmy Page or David Bowie behaved in 1971-72 they would be dragged in front of the court of public opinion Yeah, forced to apologise yeah. they would be forced yeah. to apologise for the very things that we used to like about them yeah, yeah. we yeah. liked the idea that they got up to things if you look at the biggest ones nowadays people like Taylor Swift and Ed Sheeran they're very controlled individuals all. Yeah, <laughs> There's a story in the papers over here about Ed Sheeran in wherever Ed Sheeran lives the local council were going to go and inspect to make sure he was not up to no good you thought, <laughs> that's safe and I'm sure if if you live next door to insurance, yeah. I'm sure he's the most considerate yeah, neighbor yeah,
0: yeah. you could possibly have. You know, how do you like as a guy who's lived the the rock star era? How do you view this outrage culture that we have now? You know, where anything that's said. I mean, I went to see Doug Stanhope in concert, the American comedian. He arrived out on stage, put his glasses on, took a piece of paper out, and apologized as his opening piece for what he might be yeah, about yeah, to yeah. say and who he might, you know, <laughs> offend. I, I, I think
1: it's. I think it's sad, really. I think we have to find a way of dealing with it. You know, one of the things I talked about is the dawn of the comedy record. I was writing about an American female comedian called Rusty, I can't remember a second name, who was a very big deal in the 60s, kind of nudge, nudge, saucy comedy, and making her own albums. Of course, she never got on the radio, because she was doing stuff about sex. Mm. And if you listen to it now, it's the tamest thing you've ever heard. But what was outrageous at the time was it was a woman comedian talking about sex. Nowadays, the only comedians who talk about sex are women. Country Men country. literally wouldn't dare I mean, in, in,
0: in Dublin in the seventies, when I was growing up, Monty Python's Life of Brian soundtrack and a um, uh, to crowd around. So it ban- the movie was banned in Ireland until 1994. Right. You know. There was an outrage Christian, you know, culture yeah. in Ireland. Yeah, and yeah. Yeah. You can't do it. Tell me a bit about your background. I'd like to just find out where people were from and how you got into where you got to. Oh, in my background, I come from Yorkshire. You don't have a New Yorkshire accent. No, I've lived in London since 1968, so I consider
1: myself London the problem. Um, and I came down to London in '68 to... I kind of wanted to be an actor. <laughs> I laughed myself at the idea of it. And my parents, like everybody's parents in those days, said, don't do that go and be a teacher <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, no, that's I what the they same. did you know I, I studied did three or four years at college and university and so forth and did a year's teaching and this is the early 70s and I thought no it's not really what I want to do I, I ended up with a job at HMV the big HMV shop on Oxford Street because I'd always been obsessed with records and all I wanted to do was get near records and so I had a job there for about a year for, for about three years which really should have been a year but I was in the comfort zone yeah. and that led to a job working for a small independent record company yeah. around about 76, 77 I then I started writing for the music papers NME and Sounds yeah. places like that
0: I interviewed with Paolo Hewitt recently oh right I know. I know. Yeah. right
1: yeah. and um, I found myself without no visible means of support and I, and I rang up uh, Fred Deller, as a guy I'd known at the Enemy. I said, "Is there any work around?" He said, "Well, call Nick Logan because Nick had been the editor of the Enemy. He's just started this magazine called Smash Hits, and I think yeah. he'd like some some help." Yeah. So I rang Nick, and Nick said, "Pretty much, can you come in tomorrow?"
0: Yeah, and I went in the following day and never left. I mean, Smash Hits was—I was the target. <laughs> well, there you other. go. I mean, and he was huge, you third. know.
1: So I joined there, seventy-nine, I suppose, yeah. and became future editor, and then yeah. editor, and then. It was one of those magazines. You know, this was the glory days of magazine publishing. When, whenever you more copies you put out, more you sold. And so the company who owned the EMAP, they saw this opportunity to grow. And so I was given the job as editor director director of kind of launching other magazines.
0: Which you did. And you so we launched and Just Seventeen, Empire, and and just and Q, 17. and Empire, yep. and Mojo. Do you the like that part of, the part, part of your career, or them. did you, do you prefer the broadcast element?
1: Uh, no, I, 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 I love the magazine part of yeah. my career. But, you know, it's kind of... It's gone away now. I think we probably thought it would go on forever. <laughs> and, you well, know, it they still say
0: if you make a good magazine... I mean, There, there yeah. was a doom loop of, like, no advertising, no journalism, shit product, no... Av- you know, I mean, down the gurgle. I worked with Bloomberg Businessweek's relaunch in America, which, you know, they were they were doing it for completely different reasons. For getting yeah. journalist profile. you can't apparently win a... A Pulitzer, unless you have a printed thing. No, I'm sure Steve Jobs wanting yeah. to send his mammy home a Absolutely. picture of him on the front no, that's, collar, true. You know? that's true. What about the old grey whistle test, all that side of
1: th- it? You know, alongside the journalism, I used to do bits for radio. I mean, I used to do Saturday afternoon. Radio 1 used to be a program called Rock On. And uh, through that, actually, I tell you, I'll tell you the, in 1980, I went to New York for the first time. And I went to see Bruce Springsteen, Madison Square Garden, on Thanksgiving, and there was a party afterwards in the bowling alley, meaning Madison Square Garden. And I'd had a couple of beers, and Mike Empleton, who was the kind of producer editor of Whistle Test, who I kind of knew, he was there. For the only time in my life, I went up to somebody said, "Do you know what you need? You need me." (laughs) Which is really kind of not me at all to do that. Were you drunk? yeah. Yeah not not stoogous, yeah. but you know you had your spoons yeah and uh, and uh, a few weeks later he rang me up and said can you come in and that was just after John Lennon had died mm. and so I started doing you know odd bits that was the test when, with Annie Nightingale, who was the main presenter and there's me and Mark Allen and then Tandy Kershaw and then there's Live Aid and, you know, Band-Aid.
0: And all so we have to touch on the Live Aid being an Irishman. This was your thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so basically, David was was one of the hosts of the broadcast, right, on BBC? Yes, one of,
1: the, one of them, yeah. And
0: it, this was in, what, 1985, wasn't it? And And yes. uh, Geldof, uh, who was one of the organisers with Jura, in fact, David's latest podcast, I think, has got an interview with Mijur. Right? Yes, 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 yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, and Geldof came on, and it was all live, and he... Use the f word many times, which not was that never... many, not many, times, no, not many times. It's gone all it all your fucking money. I... No, he didn't say
1: that. The thing when I was on was that do you want the do you want the boring? No, truth, <laughs> the the truth, yeah. <laughs> you know this is Billy Connolly was on the scene. As well, Billy, I've got a good story about Billy. And yeah, Connelly. and uh, the BBC were most keen that this not to be seen as a telethon, you know, because they didn't want every charity in Britain beating a past their door saying. Next week. Our numbers are down. Uh, you know, when they appealed for money, they did it in a certain order, mm-hmm. which was postal address first, then yeah. I can't remember what post office details, and, that, and then the third one was a phone number. And you had to do it in a certain order because that's when the captains came up. And so I had Bob on and, that part, and he was very exercised about the fact that he needed to be raising more money. I said, so I, was, I, was told, I told Bob, let's just a reminder of people of, you know, how they can contribute. And uh, first the address, because I knew that that's what, how it came up. And He said, fuck the address. And I just remember thinking, oh, God, I do hope my mother's not watching. <laughs> of course, my mother was watching. Everyone was Everyone watching. Everyone was watching. <laughs> the world course, was watching. Because she didn't realize that until you got home. You know, you were just in the bubble of, of Wembley and yeah. it was a very hot day and it was chaos. And, uh, you know, it wasn't until I got home after the after party and all that, four in the mornings, mm-hmm. and my wife's just sitting up in bed going, Well, that was something, wasn't it? Not home, was it? And uh, and she said, Yeah, during the day she had everybody ringing up. Oh, really? You know, like family, you know, like they've had parents, you know. Gets, gets, it just gathered momentum in the, in the during the day, which you weren't aware of. I mean, I've even got you know, my daughter has sent sent me yesterday a screen grab of uh, you know in the free Mercury film. Yeah, which I didn't, an actor I, I, appears I was, as me apparently. Really? Which yeah. Well, well, i sit. I don't know if I find the picture. She <laughs> that something it doesn't. I don't think he it too speaks. took
0: me visits to watch that
1: movie. I, I haven't seen. It I thought it was. It's uh, like a yeah, but I don't know if that... Yeah, there it is. Uh, that's, <laughs> there's an actor looking like Bob Geldof and an actor looking like me. Uh, <laughs> and people say, have you seen it? I said, no, I haven't seen it. Uh, <laughs> I've never watched the thing at all. There's a piece of it on YouTube, the of... which
0: I saw. It is, oh, yeah. it is on YouTube with Billy Connolly giggling away.
1: Billy Connolly is funny. A, a funniest... Oh, what's your link? Billy Connolly? Right? My funniest memory of the day was uh, <laughs> I was in there on the box... When the pretenders were on, Mm -hmm. and this was not long after James Honeyman Scott and Pete Farndon, the bassist and the guitarist, had both died drug related. Dance and Billy Huntley turned to me (laughs) as they were playing. I won't attempt to do his accent. He said, I wouldn't join that group. (laughs) I said, Why not? He said, Nobody. (laughs)
0: It's <laughs> my uh, favourite memory of life He was an, a, a legend So you have this you, The death of uh, rock stars The death of LPs oh, right, I do I'm going um, to take it to the end Yeah, industry. what's what's, the feel, what's away from music What's your view in life Where are we going <laughs> Hell in a hand <laughs> Hell in a It certainly feels like that Do actually. you feel positive or negative Or optimistic or pessimistic I feel very
1: pessimistic About the kind of mad Polarisation that's taken yeah. place in this country, you know uh, that, that, that you know. It's, I'm sure you find very similar parallels to it in the United States. And I don't know Ireland. I, don't, I yeah. don't know. Maybe you can. But in
0: Ireland, we're looking at Britain, going, "What the fuck is going on?" Because we, we we're under your yoke for so many years, yeah. and your politicians were always kind of scary in you know, a Norman Tebbit Thatcher <laughs> kind of way, and now. Now they're sort of idiots, like almost well, with all due respect. But you know, I mean, they're,
1: they're having to, you know, ask a silly question. You get a silly answer. What do you think is going to happen?
0: Um, the numbers suggest a new vote could be on the should be on the cards. Bearing in mind, thirty seven percent of people two years ago minus two million voted out. There is no guarantee, by the way, if if there was not vote, that there wouldn't still be the same absolutely, outcome. Yeah.
1: You, you just don't know. You
0: have all I, I, my, my my view about the.
1: Europe, you know, and I'm coloured by the fact that you know, the British government spent most of my youth trying to get in. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I remember this. <laughs> know, I, I voted in 1975 to stay in yeah, it, yeah, whatever, whatever, yeah. where you did it, you know. But on the other hand, I don't believe it's a great magic solution to all the problems of the no, world. I agree with you. I don't think it's going to it's be there the forever. It's flabby. And uh, I, I think what you've got at the moment, what I hear at the moment, is a dialogue of the death between. People who believe that leaving will suddenly result in far more jobs for their plumbers, or God knows what yeah, they yeah. think, and load of money going to the health, yeah. the health service. And on the other hand, you've got a load of kind of the people on the other side who believe that no, we're all going to join hands and dance around kind of European flag drinking cappuccino the world doesn't work like
0: that. you know what work. about the rest are we going to be run by robot overlords and like for the first time in my life I'm not that bothered that I'm not going to see what the future holds you know what I mean I was always very good oh it'd be great to see where this goes that goes you know it is the best time to be alive I, I too, I think people keep saying oh
1: they should bring back tomorrow's world <laughs> I say no they should have a program called yesterday's world yeah. Because we don't believe in tomorrow's world anymore. Because mm-hmm. if you were to tell me that a te- piece of technology will be able to do this in the future, I will tend to think, well, why can't it do it now? Yeah, yeah. Because things have happened so fast. What's interesting to me, and it's, cause it's partly what I write these books about, is I'm writing about the day before yesterday, which yes. we've probably forgotten about. Yes, yes. It, you know. Do you and think there were good old days? Well, was it Loudon Wainwright saying the good old days are good and gone now? That's yeah. why they're good, because they're gone.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice uh, When uh, was uh, America great?
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was yes, uh, a nonsense idea. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't believe that music was any better then than it's better now, you know. But I do think it's different. And I think the way we consume things the way we interact with things is very different, you know. We are very impatient
0: nowadays. We're made impatient. Mm. I read, your, I read your piece, which is nice, about you know, the oeuvre of classical music, and then that goes away. And then there was the, the, you know, the sort of jazz. Jazz, yeah. It's and 40 then years. rock music, and now there's.
1: you're at the end of hip hop. You're, you're at you, the end of the hip hop. Yeah. And then something else will. I mean, there some, will be yeah, something yeah. else.
0: There will be something else. But, you know. but There's only so many notes we can play instead of. Well, all.
1: except you would probably have said that before hip hop. You know, hip hop is very innovative, but not in a kind of tune
0: yeah.
1: sense, not in the kind of written music sense. You know, it's a different kind of tradition. I mean, Simon Technology Cowell, doesn't Simon
0: things. Cowell have a lot to answer for? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think television's
1: too. got a lot to answer for. This, uh, this
0: I, I'm going to be famous, been, I'm going to be right, you know, without doing the Hamburg, without doing the ta- 10,000 hours <laughs> that yeah. makes you a fucking good at what you do. You know? Well, maybe, you know, they, they're
1: kind of good at different things, aren't they? I suppose, you, you know, if you if you're, if you're new of stardom is being on telly, telly is a is a good proving ground for that. you know, yeah. I don't think it was for the sort Yeah, It was a different world then. And, uh, you, know, you know, the people who come up nowadays are very sophisticated. They're very self-possessed. I think it's difficult for them to be as impactful.
0: A fabulous Creation is the name of the book. It's available in a link at the bottom of the podcast. Keep writing and keep biographing what now looks like yeah. the fall of music. Um, and good luck with your life next week's show thank you very much cheers